Verse 13. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him, holding a drawn sword. And Joshua approached him and asked, Are you on our side, allied with our, or allied with our enemies? He answered, Truly I am the commander of Yahweh's army. Now I have arrived. Joshua bowed down his face to the ground and asked, What does my master want to say to his servant? What is interesting here is that very moment that they crossed the Jordan River, with, I mean, very moment within weeks and stuff, before they've done anything else, an angel appears to them. Just like the angel that appeared before the Garden of Eden, the cherubim, and then just like the angels that appeared to Jacob when he left the land through the Jordan, the angels that appeared to him when he came back through the land of the Jordan, and so, and the angels that appeared to Moses right before they went across the Jordan to, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and we see these angels constantly there, and the angels that are in front of the tabernacle. And so these angel, this angel appears. And then Joshua asks him, are you for us or are you against us? Now that's not an uncommon thing to ask somebody when they just come out of the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night. But what's interesting is the, 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 the commander doesn't answer his question. Because the implication is that's irrelevant. It should be so obvious that if this angelic being appeared to you, that I'm with God. And his answer is, I am the commander of God's army. Now, you have to understand something. Nowhere does the Bible ever portray angels as these beautiful, feminine-looking male and females with wings sitting on clouds playing harps and praise Jesus all the time. The Bible never portrays that. It actually comes from Greek pagan mythology accounts. The Bible, every time it portrays angels, they're always masculine. They actually look like humans. Every single time they encounter, most people think that they're humans unless they're appearing in a glorious way. And they're all usually called an angel of God's host. The word host is a military regiment. They're always portrayed as warriors. You see this when Elijah says to his servant, open up his eyes, God, so he can see what I see, and he sees God's heavenly host. This is where you need to understand that we've kind of got the vision of the angels appearing to the shepherds kind of wrong. Because when it says the angels appeared to them, it says the heavenly host of Yahweh appeared before the shepherds, which means they didn't see a bunch of angels sitting on clouds announcing, Jesus is here, they saw a military regiments in formation with swords and weapons standing in formation, standing there announcing this. And they were sort of afraid. Yes, that's why the shepherds are afraid. A giant army just appeared out of the middle of nowhere in the sky. And then it doesn't actually say they begin to sing. It says they begin to declare the praises of God. Now, I'm not saying angels don't sing because in the ancient world, Everybody did everything. You were athletic, you were a warrior, you were musical, you were artist. That's an Eastern way of thinking. If you've ever watched like Chinese like samurai movies, that kind of stuff, they're incredible samurai warriors, but they're also artists with the calligraphy and they also play music. Because in the Eastern world, they pride themselves on being well-rounded. Only in America do you have like the sports people and then the art people and then the music people. I mean, now sometimes those blend in, but... That's in a Western thing. That's specializing. They did sing in that kind of stuff, but that's not the image. You have a military army, and they don't announce the coming of Jesus. They say, today 
your king is here. The whole point of that imagery is that Jesus is the king and his army is standing there announcing the coming of the king. And just like Yahweh has his heavenly host army, that army also belongs to Jesus. And the army of Jesus is announcing their king has come to earth. And that's the imagery that you get most of the time throughout the Bible. And so you need to understand something, that this is an angelic warrior appearing before him. And the idea is that God's army is going to defeat Jericho, not the human army. Eventually, after Jericho, God is going to pass it off to the Israelites. But the implication is it's going to be a combination of both the angelic army as well as the earthly army. And so this is God's commander. And the point that he's asking is not whether he is with Joshua or against Joshua. The point is that Yahweh is faithful and will lead him. Yahweh is faithful and will lead him. And that's the point. The commander of the Yahweh's army answered Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet because the place where you stand is holy. What does that remind you of? Moses in the burning bush. Notice these parallels that are being created. Now, Arthur wants to make it clear that Joshua is not just some other guy. He is right there with Moses. Now, Jericho was tightly shut because of the Israelites. Yahweh told Joshua, See, I'm about to enter. And Yahweh told Joshua, See, I'm about to defeat Jericho for you, along with his king and his warriors. Have all the warriors march around the city one time. Do this for six days. Have the seven priests carry seven ram's horns and in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the horns. When you hear the army give a loud battle cry, the city wall will collapse and the warriors should charge straight ahead. Jericho is not really that big. Jericho's only really like six, three miles in diameter, somewhere around that area. It's not that big. Now, here's what we do know about it. If they're able to walk around it seven times in one day, then that means what they're doing is they're marching around it one time every single day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they're going to march around it six, seven times. That means if you can get around the city seven times in one day, then that means they're spending most of those six days not actually doing anything. They're not really doing that much. So they're just walking around. And then they spend most of the rest of the day just sitting there. Okay, which is typically most of what soldiers do. <laughs> Intense action followed by long hours of just sitting there and doing nothing. This is what they're doing. Why is God doing this? There's no reason. Now, not to be blasphemous or anything, but this doesn't make sense. There is no logic behind it whatsoever. There's no real deep spiritual significant meaning here other than like the days of creation, that kind of stuff. But even then, nowhere does God ever kind of replicate that idea. There's really no reason except for this. The fact that it's so illogical and there's no logical reason why it would work leads you to the logical conclusion that it could only have been God. And that's where the beauty and the logic is. So I'm not saying it's irrational and doesn't make sense. I'm just saying it doesn't in a human, strategic, 
practical laws of physics, all that kind of stuff sense. And so what you, you have to realize that a lot of times when God has you do something, you're like, what? That makes no sense, God. But God's pretty much his answer is exactly. Because it's going to lead to the perfect sense that the only conclusion is, was it was me. If it doesn't naturally work, then it automatically is supernatural. And so what God is having them do is making it very clear that you are not taking the city. And the fact that none of this makes sense leads you to the only conclusion that it is all God. And that is it. They could have easily said, this is ridiculous. Okay, this doesn't make sense. And you have to realize, too, they're marching around the walls. That's the worst place you can be in a battle. Because you're down and they're up, and that's a perfect place to throw things. You have to realize, when an army comes to invade your city, you don't obey the rules of war like the Redcoats and the the American Revolution did. You fight to the tooth and nail to the death. In the ancient world, when somebody started coming at the wall, they're launching arrows and flaming arrows down. They're taking rocks, their millstones, and throwing off and exploding heads like watermelons. We'll see that in the book of Judges. And they're boiling all their feces from the city and dumping it on people. They're dumping everything they possibly can on you. And yet that's exactly where Israel is. Yet they do nothing because the fear of God has come over Jericho. And they're so crippled by God, they can't do anything. There is nothing logical or intelligent or strategic in a human military sense about what they're doing. Which makes it so clear that God is their king leading them. Their warrior, their commander. And there's a heavenly army now, according to the commanders of the army, around this city and taking care of them. Because you know... If you're watching the news and like terrorists have taken like the building of Nationwide downtown and there's all these hostages inside and the head of the FBI, Mr. Johnson, gets up and he says in the interview with CNN, um, but what we're going to do is we're just going to take all the cops and all the SWAT and all the FBI and we're just going to kind of drive around the Nationwide building one time every day. On the seventh day, we're going to shoot our guns in the air and we're going to yell on our bullhorns and honk our sirens and all that, or blow our sirens and honk our horns and that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, all the terrorists are going to die and all the hostages will be free. Everybody watching CNN would be like, fire that guy. Fire that guy. But they step out in faith. No hesitation, no fear, instant obedience with no grumbling. Because they've learned the lesson their parents did not learn. This was considered one of the most militarily strategic and unconquerable forts. The two forts that were considered the hardest to conquer were Jericho and Jerusalem. And so God takes them to one of the hardest ones right off the bat. Right off the bat. The other thing you must realize is the Levites leading them. And they're to blow the ram's horn. The ram's horn is the horn used in the festivals of Yahweh. The trumpet is used in military. The ram's horn is used in religious rituals and festivals. So everything about this is spiritual and religious, not militarily. So verse 6, So Joshua, son of Nun, summoned the priests and instructed them, Pick up the Ark of the Covenant, for seven priests must carry seven ram's horns in the front of the Ark of Yahweh, 
and he told the army, move ahead and march around the city with the armed troops going ahead. So they do this. And God goes through all this again about how they did it exactly what God commanded them to do. So they marched around. Verse 15. On the seventh day, they were up in the crack of dawn and marched around the city as before. Only this time, they marched around it seven times. With seven times around, the priests blew the ram's horn, and Joshua told the army, Give the battle cry, for Yahweh is handing the city over to you. The city and all that it must be set apart for Yahweh, except for Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the spies. So notice Yahweh is now honoring that. He's making it very clear that he was behind that covenant, that treaty. Even though technically they were not allowed to make a treaty, her faith superseded the law and allowed it to happen. And God's saying, I'm honoring that. But be careful when you are setting apart the riches of Yahweh, if you take any of it, that you will make the Israelite camp subject to um, annihilation and cause a disaster. All the silver and gold, as well as all the bronze and iron items, belong to Yahweh. They must go into Yahweh's treasury. So God specifically says, this city, you are to kill and burn and destroy everything. You're not allowed to keep anything for yourself. The silver, the gold, and the bronze you are to take to the tabernacle is to be melted down in purification because these things were probably shaped in the form of idols and pagan <laughs> symbols so they are to melt it down so it purifies it and as well they can remold it into something else. But that's all to go in the tabernacle and become the holy items of God in the tabernacle. Everything else is to be completely destroyed and burned. Now here's what's interesting. God is going to allow them to keep everything from all the other cities. Every city they go to conquer, they can keep the food, they can keep the animals, as long as they kill the people who are sinners and deserve the judgment. They can keep the animals, they can keep the food, and they can even keep the bronze and the silver and the gold as long as it goes through the tabernacle and is melted down and purified, that kind of stuff. But this city has to be completely burnt, completely leveled, and the only thing that's allowed to be kept is silver and gold and bronze that goes to the tabernacle. And God says this is harem. Harem means to belong to God. Now, a lot of times some of the older translations call this put under the ban, as in forbidden. But that's not exactly the term. Because every single time that's described as this is haram, it means it's to be consecrated, that it belongs to Yahweh. And what's interesting is even the killing of the people and the animals is haram, which means that they are belonging to God because they belong to God in judgment. This isn't about just a land grab. This isn't about just getting resources. This isn't about political dominance and power. This is about giving them over to God in judgment. And so he makes it very clear that it belongs to him in the tabernacle or belongs to him in judgment. But you're not allowed to keep anything. This is the only city that they're to do that to everything. Because every other city, they're allowed to live in it, and they're allowed to keep the resources. This city, they're not ever allowed to live in it. Why? Because God commanded that not only were they to do the Passover, which was followed by unleavened bread, meaning a time of repentance, but immediately after that, the Sunday after that, was, pass was first fruits. And first fruits festival, you were to offer up the first fruits of everything to God. You're to take the first fruits of your figs, your grain, 
whatever, and you're immediately to burn it in the fire to belong to God. Now, part of this was a trust in God. You were saying, I acknowledge that the reason I have this is because God gave it to me. I acknowledge that there's no way I can survive if I burn that. But I'm going to burn it because I know my hope for survival is in Yahweh and not in the things that I produce in the land. And so it was an incredible act of trust in God, recognizing that he alone is what truly provides for you, not your own works and your own resources. And you were to take the first of your animals that were born and give them to God. You were to take the first of the, the gold and the silver that you earned in a trade and give it to God. You were to take the first of everything and give it to God. And so what God is saying is Jericho is the first fruits. The first city that God gives them belongs to God. And this is going to be an incredible act of trust because they have to trust that God is going to give them other cities. They finally come to a home. Now, I don't recommend you do this in real estate, but they finally have a home that they can move into and they're supposed to burn it to the ground, trusting that God will give them another one. And that's what God is commanding here. Give the first fruits to him. And they're going to do it. They're going to do it without hesitation. And what's interesting is a man by the name of John Gerenstein who is a Jewish kind of atheistic archaeologist from like the 1950s, 60s era. And I think he just died recently. He was one of the first people to uncover Jericho and a dig. And he discovered that all the walls had come down on top of each other rather than being batting in from the side. And that there was a burn mark around a certain level where everything had been burned grain, everything. And they, normally armies don't burn grain. That's not wise. And they could see that everything had been green. Pottery with grain in it had st- was still there and the ashes and that kind of stuff. Now, just like until really the 19 or 2000s, we could date things by style. You can look at somebody's kitchen, the clothes that they wear in a movie, or the cars that they can drive, and you can say, that's the 50s, that's the 60s. You can do the same thing with pottery. And so by looking at the pottery, he dated the destruction of Jericho around 1400 B.C., give or take a few years. Well, if you do the math, if the Exodus happened in 1446 and they wandered in the desert for 40 years, then that puts the conquest of Jericho around 1406. And he wasn't really even a believer in God with an axe to grind trying to prove anything. Now, later, a woman by the name of Kathleen came along and tried to disprove all this kind of stuff. But recently, in just about the last 10 years, all of her evaluations, conclusions have been completely overturned. And there's a new part of Jericho has been discovered that has reinforced John Gerenstein's findings even more without a shadow of a doubt that he was right. And so the reality is that's one of the evidence that the Exodus happened when God said it did and not when, like, the History Channel says it's something else. So the reality is all this historical evidence is backing it up in this sense. So God says that you're going to be under the judgment if you take anything from the city. Verse 20, the ram's horn sounded, and when the army heard the signal that they gave a loud battle cry, and the wall collapsed, and the warriors charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. They annihilated with the sword everything that breathed in the city, including men and women, young and old, as well as cattle and sheep and donkeys. Joshua told the two men who had spied on the land, enter the prostitute's house and bring out the woman and all who belonged to her as you promised her. 
Because they have been seeing the faithfulness of God to them, it's easy for them to be faithful to the people in their own lives. They brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought out her whole family and took them to a place outside the Israelite camp. But they burned the city and all that was in it except for the silver, the gold, and the bronze, and the iron items, and they put in the treasury of Yahweh's house. Yet Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, her family, and all who belonged to her. She lives in Israel to this very day and will end up becoming the grandmother of Boaz because she had the messengers of Joshua sent, this, sent to spy on Jericho. At that time, Joshua made the solemn declaration, the man who attempts to rebuild the city of Jericho will stand condemned before Yahweh. He will lose his firstborn son when he lays its foundations and his youngest son when he erects the gates. Yahweh was with Joshua, and he became famous throughout the land. Now notice that most of the attention is on the consecration of the city and not. The city collapsing is like two sentences. It collapsed, they entered, they wiped out. Everything else that we've been spending our time on is their faithful obedience to Yahweh and Yahweh consecrating and memorializing this event. The focus is on how they responded in faith and what they did with the memory of that day and their obedience. Not on the actual... As Americans, we want epic action. But all God wants is trust, faith, and obedience. Now granted, there was more action than what this is given, but that's not the importance. That's not the importance of it. And so God was faithful. And Joshua put a curse on the city saying that it cannot ever be rebuilt or you're under the judgment of God. If you curse something, that doesn't mean the universe has to obey you and fulfill that. But remember, Joshua has become like a prophet. And he's speaking the will of God. And that is God's judgment, not just like Joshua saying, I curse this city. Okay, And so the reality is you need to understand that because when we get to judges, somebody is going to rebuild the city. And because, and why is that so sinful? Because that's like donating something to God and tithing to Him and then taking it back for your own selfish purposes. That's evil. That's selfish. So is the modern-day Jericho the same as that one? No. The modern-day Jericho today is not the same. And here's what happened. The Jews got really good at loopholes. And what they decided to do was, let's just build Jericho a couple miles away, and then we're not under the curse. This is what they do on the, the, when they do with the, um, the year of Jubilee, or the seventh year where you're not allowed to plant or grow anything in that year. And they're like, well, what we'll do is, in that seventh year, this is what they do today, we'll just sell everything we own to a Muslim family under a one-year contract. And the contract says it's theirs for one year. They can plant and grow anything. And they can donate a part of the crops to us in that year. And we'll set a specific percentage. And then at the end of the year, it reverts back to us. So therefore, we have technically obeyed that seven-year Sabbath of not planting anything in the land. But at the same time, we don't really have to trust God or any of that kind of stuff. We'll still get our food. So that, they do that stuff all the time. So, and I'm not, and I, by that I don't mean like every single Jew is like that, but 
as a whole, the nation is pretty atheistic and very secular. So now here's what's interesting. They walked around the city for how many days one time each day? Six. Six. And on the seventh day is the day that they took the city, right? What day is that? The Sabbath. You know, invading a city and conquering it and killing people and fighting, that's a lot of work. And so this shows you, this, the Sabbath, yes, don't get me wrong, God strictly said, do not work. But he, the, the, the focus was not on do not work. The focus was that he knew in that time period, working was hard. And to work keeps you from connecting with God, because God is in the tabernacle. But ultimately, in the end, that was not really the focus. The focus was resting with God and participating with God. And whatever work that you do that keeps you from that, that needs to halt. But the thing is, even though this would have been a lot of physical work, what better way to connect to God and rest with Him but to see the miracle of Jericho collapsing and the faithfulness of God giving the city? And in that way, that is a rest, because in that day, even though it would have been a lot of hard physical work, that day was not about them working to gain their food, to make money for themselves through their own efforts. It was a day of work where they were seeing God do miraculous things and honors faithfulness, where they can then rest and be reminded of who he is and who they are in relationship to him. And then every Sabbath after that, they would have a memory of where God literally did show up and bring them rest and conquering a city that they didn't have to do that much. And then all, when you begin to realize that the, 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 the priests are sacrificing animals on the Sabbath and they're invading on the Sabbath, you begin to realize what work really means to God. The abstaining from work is the things that get in the way of resting and remembering God. I have a friend who he is a accountant at J.P. Morgan. And he is in an office all day crunching numbers. He loves it. But when he comes home, he works in his garden. And he works in the garden. And in that garden, he feels at rest and at peace. And he says some of his best times with God and thinking is in that garden. You put me in the garden, I hate it. And I don't know if I've mentioned that before, but that, that's the point. That's the point. So you have to realize that. Any questions, comments?